If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to read the entire context of this, even though we're taking it chunk by chunk over the next several weeks. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, where it says, Let love be genuine or unhypocritical. That's the word we talked about last week. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on your head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If we could live the life laid out in those verses I just read perfectly, never hypocritical, ever hating the things God hates, ever loving the things God loves, ever serving, ever honoring, ever hoping, ever enduring patiently, always praying, always giving, and grinding it out with grace, always hosting, never caving, constantly feeling the joys and the hurts of others, and ready to be like Jesus under persecution, well then, we'd be perfect. Bummer. We're all sinners. Can I get a universal amen out of that? We're imperfect. We're destined to failure, to be hypocrites, to love sin, hate the holy, cave in under pressure, serve ourselves, dishonor others, lose hope. Pray little, give little, and show little grace. To be cold to both the joys and the hurts of others, and to even contrive ways in which we can get payback with those who've hurt us. God help us. Come to think of it, He has. As we've moved through this great salvation epistle, Paul 
talking about the struggles he has in his own life and we have in our lives in Romans chapter 7 says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Praise be to God. Through Jesus Christ, I have victory. And then I have the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 to come in and control my life to overcome in these very areas of temptation and struggle. We have Father God in Romans 9 who has a plan that even includes you and me. Can you imagine that? And earlier in Romans 12, we have a gifted church (coughs) to love and help us to apply these Christian principles to our lives. And so these ways of living, this unpacking of the Christian life, albeit imperfectly practiced, it is possible by the power of God. And the church of Jesus Christ, that's us, it is incumbent upon you and upon me to be passionate in our pursuit of living this stuff out, even though we fail. So here's our chunk for this morning. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Okay, so last week we began to unpack this. We said this is all predicated on two things. One, you have experienced the mercy of God. You had a time in your life where you have placed your faith in Jesus and experienced his death and his resurrection, you've embraced him as your savior. It's also predicated on the fact that you have surrendered yourself to him. The first two verses, I beg of you, dear brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and that holy and perfect will of God. And then you're utilizing the gifts that God has given to you. So we started last week in verse 9 where he says, let love be genuine. We said, let love be without hypocrisy. I have to tell you about a a friend of mine who happens to be of Asian descent. And uh, she works in this coffee shop I frequent. And she's telling me the other day, she says, uh, her name's Kelly. She says, but if you can't remember that, just call me Kim, which was really kind of funny actually. She says, she goes, she goes, you know, I'm, 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 my ethnicity is Asian, but I'm from Southern Iowa. She goes, I'm more white than anybody in this room. <laughs> she was just funny to talk to. She says, I got to tell you, she says, the other day I got, I was in Missouri. I got pulled over by a highway patrolman. He took one look at me and said, uh, you were speeding, ma'am, but since you're not from this area, I'll let you go. So she was not about to lose that opportunity. She goes, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> that was priceless. Wouldn't it be funny if that high patrolman got to see this sermon? <laughs> now we can forgive that kind of hypocrisy, can we not? But in the church, hypocrisy is hard to take. And as we said last week, if pride is the core of every sin, hypocrisy is its cover. 
And I don't wear a pastor's outfit, so to speak, but my position can be a great cover for hypocrisy. But so can yours. How can we unpack this kind of Christian genuineness? And let me just give you two ways because of the sake of our time, we're going to be observing the Lord's table this morning. Here's the first. By demonstrating a love that is spiritually passionate. Now Paul is sort of piling on the love language in his word usage in this passage where he says, love one another with brotherly affection. In fact, he uses two different... He uses, the first word he uses is the word uh, philos storge. It's a, a compound. It's the only time he ever uses this word in the New Testament. It's a compound word. And it means to be devoted. If you have a Holman, it says something like it. Be devoted with a family kind of love or something like that. So the Holman's tried to capture the meaning of this word. But it's not an easy word to capture. We understand philos, so we're going to come back to that because he repeats it again in the, in the phrase brotherly love, which is the word Philadelphia. But this word philos storge is, is, a, is a word, storge is a, is a word which means a family kind of love. Uh, primarily, that's what the word means. So a lot of people come and go in your life and in mine, but family sticks around, Right? I mean, even if they're a thousand miles away, and even if you're not even that close personally, they're family. Something happens in their life, you're automatically, you don't mess with family, right? That's the idea in this word, storge. That's the way the church should be. We're family. We love, we defend one another. We're there for one another. Uh, The other way this word is used, by the way, is it's like like, uh, the love that you'd have for, uh, for your dog, for the dog, I mean, you're, I mean, you love the dog, right? Uh, for the love you have for, uh, for an old sweater that your wife's been trying to throw away for the last three years, you know. But you just, it just fits so good, you know. I brought one of them to a party the other day. My wife says, what are you wearing that for? I say, I, it feels good, you know. I like it. it. It doesn't look good, she says. But I love this thing. That's the idea in that word. And it kind of carries the idea of, of just... It's, it's the idea of, of things that you're comfortable, and in this case, people that you're comfortable with, just being around. And usually that's the way family is, isn't it? It just sort of, that's where you just let the hair down and you're just, they're family for crying out loud. You just, you're just yourselves. And he says, we ought to be devoted to this kind of love in the church. That's what he's saying here. And then there's that, again, that, more familiar phrase under the phrase brotherly affection. That's the word for, that's the word Philadelphia. That's the, that's the family, the reciprocal kind of love that says, I love you and you love me. We love each other. It's interesting to me that the word agapao or agape is not used here. That's that high form of sacrificial love because if Paul used that word, we might be tempted to think, well, you know, i got to love whether I feel like it or not. It's a stoic kind of love, sacrificial kind of love. But instead, he uses, he, he purposely uses words that are chock full of emotion, chock full of pulse, chock full of feeling. This business of loving without feeling is completely divorced from the Bible. We have to connect our our feelings to the people that God has saved that we're in the same camp with. That's the idea here. 
So it's, it's not perfunctory. In fact, he, verse, if you skip down to verse 11, he says, he, kind of, he, he sort of gives a rally call there. Look what he says. he says. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, almost a contradiction in terms. How, how can you be lazy in your zeal? Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. There's nothing perfunctory about this. It's passionate. It's real. We've heard over the last several years, well, you know, uh, what the church really needs is authenticity because what young people are looking for is authenticity. And I say to to people who say that, are you kidding me? That's what people have always been looking for. Isn't that true? Who wants to be in a phony church, a plastic church? Let us know. Not be that way. Let your love be this devoted family love that's passionate for one another. A new Christian told me just yesterday, and I quote, I don't feel like people are looking down on me at Sailorville. I don't feel like I'm being judged. I thought to myself, that's family. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, Now, considering brotherly love, I need not tell you, brother, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So you'd almost think, okay, case closed, move on, Paul. Instead, he says, even so, increase all the more. Isn't that interesting? Paul commends them for their love, and but then he tells them to increase in it. This is, the, this is where I got that phrase many years ago that God wants us to do better at what we do best. He wants us to be ever increasing in the realm of love for one another. So be passionate. Demonstrate your love with spiritual passion. Here's a second second way in which we can unpack this genuineness. By competing with one another in honoring others. You see the competition there in verse 10? It's... It's so, again, it's a word never used again in the New Testament. Un or outdo one another in showing honor. There's divine competition for you there. Not compassion, competition. The word outdo, it basically carries the meaning of to lead the way. Lead the way in this area. To show deference to another person. It's The idea is found in John the Baptist who has this just huge leading, but he literally and personally and by design loses his congregation to another. Remember that? When he says, as he sees Jesus, he must what? Increase. I must. That's outdoing one another. He's deferring. He's leading the way to give honor to someone else and ultimately to God. By the way, it's present tense, so it means we have, this ought to be a constant way of life. And just, I mean, I hate to get technical, but it's kind of, it, it, the Greek has a voice to it, and the voice here is middle. And when there's a middle voice, that means you have to take the initiative in this area. You must take initiative to, uh, to outdo one another in showing honor to others and not yourself. He's already told us in verse 3, of uh, chapter 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. C.S. Lewis said, Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, but what does this mean to outdo one another? How does this unpack itself? 
John Piper says it boils down to prefer to honor rather than to be honored. If you try to honor someone, it means, I'm sorry, if you try to out-honor someone, it means you love to honor more than you love to be honored. You enjoy elevating others to honor more than you enjoy being elevated to honor. Put to death the craving for honor and cultivate the love of honoring others, unquote. There is a, there is a scene in the movie Gladiator that powerfully shows the antithesis of this kind of thing, the opposite of this. Uh, here is Maximus. He is the former Roman general, greatly honored, greatly loved by Rome itself and by its former emperor, now dead. He has been reduced to a gladiator slave by the new emperor, Commodus, who, is making, who discovering that he couldn't put Maximus to death when he tried to, now tries other means to do so within the arena. And once he's failed to do it, there's this classic scene where the emperor Commodus comes out to Maximus and says, why don't you die? Maximus ignores him and starts to turn and walk away to which Commodus, who is just insanely jealous and insanely desirous of being honored himself and to be loved by the people who don't love him, he strikes out at Maximus by reminding him of the awful, despicable death that his wife and son experienced. And as you watch the scene, you think, oh my goodness, just cut him down, Maximus. But Russell Crowe, who plays the part, turns to the new emperor and says, the time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end, highness. And he walks away. It's a powerful moment in the movie. But I thought to myself, when that scene came to my mind as I was studying this, isn't that true of all of us? The time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end. Everyone here, everyone here will eventually bow to Jesus Christ. Whether as just a praise on your way into heaven or as an escort into hell. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that he is Lord, and all of your honor will go away. I was reading just the other day in my devotions in Psalm 49, where it's talking about the rich and how they die and people who love to honor themselves. Uh, He says in verse 17, For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Why? Because the time for honoring ourselves will soon come to an end. So God says, if you are a child of God, you should outdo one another in showing love and honor to others. I was at a party last night for Dennis Anderson. He turned, <laughs> you're old. And, uh, and for fun... Uh, his son Josh uh, set the rest of us up, big group of people, uh, 
because Dennis is a car guy, so say something about my dad that, and connect it with the car. Which was, by the way, Josh, not an easy thing for, to do, by the way, but a few of us made vain, uh, you know, attempts at it. But what was really cool, very cool, in fact, was that the idea was almost completely abandoned in a competition of expressing honor to a man who has loved his God and served his family well. It was a beautiful thing, and it was a total expression of this this passage of Scripture right here. So, just as we wind this down, how, how, how can we unpack this business of outdoing one another by showing honor? Let me give you just four ways, and we'll button it up, and we'll turn over to the Lord's table here. First, by recognizing that any honor given you first came from God. Any honor given to you first came from God. What do you have that you've not received, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And if you did receive it, why do you act as if you didn't? Every piece, every fabric, every element of honor that's ever been bestowed upon you came from God. And don't ever forget that. So here is Pilate ready to crucify the Lord whose death we are about to celebrate. And he is a mangled mess in front of him, having been beaten within an inch of his life, with a crown of thorns pierced upon his brow. And Pilate's trying to extract information from him in a, in a moment of complete frustration and desire for power and honor. He says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you and let you go? To which Jesus replies, you would have no power unless it was given to you from above. Boom, shakalaka. (laughs) Here's a second thing. By sharing the honor that was given to you. By sharing the honor that was given to you. So spread the honor by honoring those God has used behind the scenes in your life to get you where you're at, right? You know, when you're climbing that ladder of life, don't forget the rungs that got you to the top, right? When 26-year-old George Washington, 26 years old, was going to retire, of course, we know that didn't last very long, He tried to retire from the military after the French-Indian War. And his fellow soldiers did a huge tribute to him. And Eric Metaxas, in his book, Seven Men, records that George George Washington addressed this group of men, this 26-year-old man. I'll show you the character of our first president-to-be. When he said, He thanked the men, saying that he did so with, quote, true affection for the honor you have done me, for if I have acquired any reputation, it is from you I derive it, unquote. The longer I live, the more I see the people that God has used in my life to put me where I'm at. And I would say to you, once you've done the same, recognize them. Honor them. 
Thank them. And thank God for putting them in your life. That's how you can keep outdoing one another and showing honor. Here's the third thing. And this is big. By overlooking the shortcomings of your brethren. I put this in there just for myself. I mean, so that you would overlook mine. That's what I meant. <laughs> Let's face it. There are people in your life who, though possessing positions of honor, we don't want to honor. Am I right? They've disappointed us. They have failed us. They have hurt us. And doggone it, they just don't deserve to be honored. Again, John Piper has a very practical and convicting appeal to us in showing how we can honor even those that we don't quite feel like it, though we were just told moments ago we got to put our feelings in this thing. Listen to these words. They are, I'll tell you something, some of the most powerful I've ever read from him. And so I give them to you in whole. He said, Look for evidences of grace in their flawed lives. Every believer has evidences of grace. God is at work in every saint. Don't dishonor the work of God by only complaining about the works of the flesh. Oh, it gets a lot better than that. Look for evidences of grace. This is what God is going to do for you at the last judgment. He's going to gather up all the D's and F's of your life and burn them. Then he will spread out your C's and your B's and rejoice over the evidences of grace in your life. And then he says, I don't think there will be many A's and certainly no A pluses. Do for others now what God will do for you then. Rejoice over every evidence of grace. We do this with our children. Let us do it for each other. Let the wideness of grace waken more and more affection. Are you willing to overlook the shortcomings of your brethren? How else are we going to have this family kind of love, huh? Hmm? One more thing. By remembering who you are, if you're a Christian, that is. A fellow brand snatched from the fire. You can honor the people that God places in your life. In fact, you can we can get into this competition of outdoing one another by honoring others. If we keep it before our hearts and our lives, 
that all we are are brands snatched from the fire. That's it. Don't just say it. Believe it. You'll be humble. You won't be proud. You won't be stubborn. And you'll give honor. Brands snatched from the fire. If you watch the local news this last week, you'll know that about four or five days ago, horrible accident on Interstate 35. Two, one semi goes across, hits another semi, and the mess, oil, diesel, fuel, all over the place, wrecked cars. And if you look in the center of that picture, there is one vehicle right in the middle of it. It is absolutely amazing, completely broken up, that this individual lived, drove right into the thick of it. And when our own Gary Roop stepped out of that car, his first thought was, I asked him, I said, what was the first thing you did, Gary? He said, he goes, I got out, I couldn't believe I was, I, I didn't know what happened, I, just, I didn't know what happened. And I'm just sort of walking around in a daze, and all of a sudden, people are coming up to me, they're explaining, get away from the car, it's going to explode, and do this, and you need to do this, and you need to lay down, and get on the stretcher, and do this. He said, after, after everything sort of settled down, and I realized what had happened, and that I was still alive, he said, I don't know, I was just glad to be alive. You know, when, when you come to know Jesus, there's this craziness where you go, you know, what, what happened to me, right? And you got people coming into your life, read your Bible, come to church. By the way, you need to do that, Chris. <laughs> Be around Christian people, you know. Do this, and the devil's going to get you if you're not careful. And there's so all this information coming at you. But then if you get quiet with God, and this ought to be a regular thing, we realize, I'm just glad to be alive. I'm just glad to be saved. I'm just glad to be a brand snatched from the fire. And some of you, right now as we speak, are heading for that accident that will take you into an eternity and you will be in the fire because you've not been snatched. You've not been rescued. The greatest honor I could bestow upon you is the honor of giving you the good news that Jesus Christ is the great snatcher. He will rescue you. And he has done everything necessary to do so by dying for your sins and rising again from the dead. If you've never humbled your heart to him, if you've never seen yourself as a sinner, lost, hell-bound, fire-bound, then do so right now because that's exactly where you're going. That's exactly where you're headed but then recognize that Jesus died for you. He died to save you from that wreck, from that catastrophic event that will last forever. He died to make you his child if you will place your faith in him today. Believe in his death and resurrection. Embrace Jesus. And then go from here, constantly remembering 
before God, before men, and before the brethren that you love, I too am just a brand snatched from the fire. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture reminding us of what the Christian life is supposed to look like, and we confess our failures, we confess our sin, we confess our hypocrisy, we confess our hatred, we confess our jealousy, we confess our stubbornness, we confess our desire, prideful desire to to honor ourselves and not others. Forgive us, dear God. And help us to understand by your power and your grace that we sang about how to love one another. And I pray, Lord, now for those who have never been snatched from the fire, still lost in their sin, that they will place their faith in Jesus right now. And this is a great time to do so. If that's you while we're praying, and you'd say, I'm, I'm that person heading for a catastrophe, heading for the fire. Oh, Lord Jesus, I believe you died and rose again for me. I trust you. I embrace you. I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you. Come into my life and save me. He will, if that's your heart's cry. God, I pray the rest of us would understand this whole business from this great passage of Scripture, what it means to demonstrate genuine love that's spiritually passionate and understand the meaning of competing with one another in order to honor others in the family of God. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we celebrate the Lord's table, this is a perfect time to do so. A message about the brethren loving one another passionately. This is a time of introspection. This is a time to consider yourself before God. Are you a Christian? Because these elements that we pass out here of juice and bread are not, they're symbols. The bread represents the perfect life of Jesus. The juice represents the sacrificial death of Jesus. Together, the perfect life and the sacrificial death is what brings us salvation. His perfect life Nevertheless, he takes upon himself your sin and mind when he dies for our sin. And we remember that. And this is why we come back to this whole business of remembering that we are just brands snatched from the fire. That's why we have communion. It won't, it doesn't, it's not, it's like baptism. It's not a sacrament. It's not going to make you holy because you took it. But it's a very holy moment. It's very important that you take the time to examine yourself, confess any sin, If you have aught with a brother or a sister in Jesus, then deal with that matter. Get it right. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before them. Because after all, we're family. Deacons, would you come and we'll distribute the elements.
Well, the scripture that we have for celebrating this moment is in 1 Corinthians 11. I'll simply read it for, Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. May we pray. Our Father, again, we thank you for this time we can be in your word and in worship in the word and in song with this special emphasis today on what it looks like to unpack the Christian life in an unhypocritical way, in a genuine way, a way that brings honor to you, builds up the body, strengthens us, to go out into this world and make a difference for Jesus' sake. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the rescue that we have experienced in Jesus. And may we go from here today ever mindful of that. And I pray for those who are still wrestling with that whole business of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I pray that this, these truths that they've learned today and even around this table here, might begin to sink deeper and deeper into their hearts until they believe and their lives are changed. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.